Romans chapter one, beginning in verse one, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome. Beloved of God, called to be saints. The book of Romans is perhaps the most influential book ever written by Paul the Apostle. Now, all scripture is inspired by God, but few books contain the doctrinal, the dispensational, the practical truths in such a short space. Many of the so-called giants of church history have savored this book as the most meaty. The early church father, Augustine, was brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus by reading this book. According to his book, Confessions, he was in a garden contemplating his wickedness overcome with the profound weight and guilt of his sin. And as he was weeping, he heard some children chanting in Latin, tole, lege, tole, lege, which in Latin means take it up and read it, take it up and read it. There was an open scroll of the book of Romans beside him. And he picked it up. His eyes fell on a section in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, where it says, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He was converted. Martin Luther, the German monk, launched the Protestant Reformation a few years after Columbus's fateful voyage to the New World. Columbus' discovery changed the map of Europe forever, but Luther's discovery of Romans changed the spiritual map of the church forever. Luther did not discover the great doctrine of the of salvation by grace alone in Christ alone any more than Columbus discovered America. Columbus came to a land that was already there and Luther came to a great doctrine that was already there. John Bunyan was so inspired by the great themes of the book of Romans that in a Bedford jail, he sat and he wrote the book that you know as Pilgrim's Progress. The young John Wesley was converted to Jesus as he heard someone read Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Wesley wrote that he felt his heart strangely warmed. 
And he became the instrument God would use to spark a great revival in the 18th century. The book of Romans changed the lives of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in each generation of the church. This book changed my life, perhaps more than any other. I'm going to suggest to you that it can change your life, too. And I'm hoping that its great themes will fill you with joy and a profound sense of expectation. I'm hoping that the book of Romans will inspire you and transform you. You know, when when a new person accepts the Lord, I encourage them to read the gospel of John. I encourage discouraged Christians to read the book of Romans. I encourage people who are dry and empty and bored to read the book of Romans, to understand it and love it and live it. Why? Because of of a rule that I call the law of diminishing returns. Do you know what the law of diminishing returns is? It's the idea that once you've been saturated with something, it tends to satisfy you less and less. And and sin and self-centeredness and the desire to have your own way, the ultimate goal in many people's lives is little more than perpetual satisfaction or self-satisfaction. Selfishness, selfishness will eventually alienate you from everyone you love and everyone who loves you. Sin will produce guilt and... And sin produces meaningless and sin produces a chain of bad news, which leads to hopelessness. And there will come a point in your life where you are sick of yourself. And you are sick of your sin and you are sick of trying to satisfy yourself. Millions of babies are born each year into a world filled with bad news. And someone has once cynically commented that the only good thing about a temporary peace is it gives everyone a chance to reload. Into a world of bad news comes good news. The gospel of God, as Paul puts it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it, the gospel of righteousness, the gospel of hope. Let me give you just a real brief background into the book. The book of Romans was written by Paul, the apostle, during his three month visit to the church at Corinth. If you could dial back in time and you could go back to the first century Remember, it's about 32 or 33 A.D. in which Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. In about 57, 58 A.D., according to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, on Paul's third missionary journey, he comes to Corinth and he begins teaching them. It's also been my experience that a pastor teaches a congregation the things that God has placed on his heart. And we may well assume the great doctrines that Paul wrote to the Romans, he taught to the Corinthians. We have a clue from Romans chapter 16, verse 23, that two Corinthian companions may have prompted Paul's writing of this book. The letter was probably hand delivered by a young woman named 
Phoebe, according to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. She was from a place called Cancaria. Cancaria was a port city on the north side of Corinth, just eight miles from there. And almost certainly she took this letter to the assemblies of the congregations in Rome. By the way, who did the church in Rome? How did the church in Rome really start? Who planted the church? Well, again, a quick Glance at chapter 16 would seem to indicate that there was way more than one assembly in the city of Rome. There were several assemblies. One answer without historical or scriptural foundation is that Peter founded the church. Paul greets many people at the end of the book in the 16th chapter, but not Peter. It makes sense that Paul would have mentioned something of Peter's presence in his prison epistles if Peter were, in fact, the pastor at Rome. Paul was certainly anxious to visit this great capital of the Caesars. If you look in verse 13, you just flip the page just real quick. It says, now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered Until now, in chapter 15, verse 22, he repeats the same sentiment in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. We learn of his desire, desperate desire to go there. Chapter 23, verse 11 of Acts also talks about his wanting and willingness to go to Rome. This compulsion to go seems highly unlikely if Peter were already there. So how did the gospel get to Rome? The most likely explanation are that converts from Pentecost, Gentile converts to Judaism, they came to Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel. And like I said, all the names that are given in Romans chapter 16 are Gentile. They gravitated to other cities. And I'm going to suggest to you, as they gravitated to these cities, they eventually made their way to Rome. Rome was the political and the economic and the state religious center of the world. Thousands of pilgrims and officials of every sort would go to the different provinces throughout the Mediterranean and then make their way back to what's been called the eternal city. We know from other sources that Claudius, the emperor, kicked most of the Jews out of Rome. And the Jews would not have been allowed to return until sometime later. This whole book of Romans is a commentary or a letter, if you will, on one single verse of scripture. The scripture is found in the book of Habakkuk. A book that probably some of you have never even read and couldn't find if 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 your life depended upon it, unless you had a table of contents in your Bible. But in chapter two, verse four of the book of Habakkuk, there is a verse. The verse says that the just shall live by faith. This verse is found in Romans chapter one, verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. That's the theme of this book. The just. And by the way, 
It is a word that is going to be a reoccurring word. These words are repeated, by the way, in Galatians chapter three, verse 11, where the theme of the book of Galatians is how the just shall live by faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, it's repeated where the theme of Hebrews is living by faith. Warren Wiersbe adds this wonderful insight in his book. He says, quote, Romans is the first epistle in the New Testament. You will note that the order of the New Testament letters follows Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16, where it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for Doctrine, Romans, the great doctrinal book, reproof, first and second Corinthians, where Paul reproves sins, correction, Galatians, where Paul corrects false teaching, instruction in righteousness, Ephesians and Paul's remaining letters, Colossians, Philippians, where again, the great, great theme of the book is living based on Christian teaching. So the theme of this great book is righteousness. The word will appear, like I said, 40 times in one form or another. In chapters 1 through 3, we'll see the demand for righteousness. In chapters 3 through 5, the declaration of righteousness. And by the way, what is righteousness? The Old Testament word in the Hebrew language is sedek. The New Testament word in the Greek language is dikeia. These are words that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament spoke of a purity of heart, a cleansing, a washing, a deep internal cleansing on the inside that would result in living differently on the outside. We might think of it as a purity of heart that leads to a purity of life. There was a Latin proverb that said that God takes notice of clean hands, not full hands. Most people thought that righteousness would come by the law, by obedience to the law, that if you knew what God's will was and you knew what God's plan was and you just simply knew what God wanted from you, then you could just simply obey what God wanted to you. But God would abolish the law in what respect in the standards The the law reflects his righteousness, but the law as a system was replaced because it was powerless to change you from the outside and then cleanse you on the inside. It could not bring what we desperately need. Real righteousness. A right standing with God. The righteousness of God is his divine holiness applied in moral government. And in the domain of his laws or commands, righteousness is linked to God's holiness and his absolute perfection. When the Bible speaks of righteousness of Christ, it speaks not only of Jesus's absolute perfection, but his absolute obedience his perfect obedience to the law and his suffering for the penalty For our sin. 
So righteousness speaks of the holiness and faithfulness and justice of God. The righteousness of the law is the obedience that the law requires, according to Romans chapter three, verse 10. The righteousness of faith is the justification that is received by faith. And so their great themes are going to be talked about over and over again. Righteousness, justification, sanctification, glorification. And by the way, the process of sanctification is just another way of describing righteousness. In a nutshell, righteousness is that which produces the ability for God to see you and accept you. But in order for God to see you and accept you, he has to see you and accept you on a basis that he embraces, which is the perfection of Jesus. Israel is a picture of what happens when righteousness is rejected. And so look at verse one, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In the very first verse, Paul discloses three important things about himself. Number one, his position as a servant of Jesus Christ. Number two, his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And number three, his power in being set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, according to this book and what I know about the New Testament. When Paul is writing these words, he had never been to Rome. For the most part, Paul was unknown to the saints at Rome. This is Paul's introduction of himself. And Paul will use the common form of greeting in the ancient world. He begins with his name, Paul. Unlike phone solicitors. I hate phone solicitors. I really do. They call you. Hi, are you looking for an opportunity? Are you looking for this? Are you looking for that? If a phone solicitor calls you and says, I'm so and so from the long distance company. I'm here to save you money. Buy my product. You can say no. They try to trick you into thinking you have some sort of relationship with them. Is this Gino Geraci? Yeah. Aren't you Mary Geraci's husband? Yeah. Do you have three children named Miguel and Anthony and Jonathan? Yeah, yeah, that's me. Well, I'm here to sell you something. Oh, what a letdown. I thought you really cared about me. Paul does exactly the opposite. He begins by identifying himself just so that you know that. Now, think about this, because I know some people come to church and they think you're going to try and sell me something, right? No. You're going to try and get me to give you something, right? Uh, no. Paul begins by identifying himself as a slave by choice. Paul, a bondservant, by the way. The word translated bondservant is doulos. It meant to bind or to be bound. It was the description of a slave, but not just simply a slave, a slave by choice. He doesn't introduce himself as Paul, learned rabbi, advanced degrees from JU. That's Jerusalem University. 
brilliant exegete. Soon to be author of one third of the New Testament. Will soon be played by Anthony Hopkins in the movie Apostle of the Heart Set Free. That's when you know you're famous when Anthony Hopkins plays you on the big screen. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul writes, slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that the term carried with it the tone of abject, servile, lowliness. Paul describes himself as a person who's been purchased by his master. Paul introduces the anthropology of self. And it is rooted and grounded in the concept of service and servanthood. Our identity in Christ, slaves. In another place in the Bible, Paul uses a different word, not doulos. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. When he uses that word, the word translated servant in 1 Corinthians, he uses a word which means a galley slave. An under rower. It was the lowest of the low. It was a person whose job was to sit on the lowest rung in the galley, pushing the oars. Paul would have also known that it wouldn't have been impressive to the average Roman reader. If I wrote a letter to you and I signed it, Gino, janitor at Kmart. You might just crumple it up and throw it in the trash. What's lower than a janitor? Janitor trainee. Now, many of the people who could read Paul's letter would have been a slave. I'm going to suggest to you that many wouldn't have been able to read his letter. I'm going to suggest to you that many people who heard these words for the very first time Immediately identify with them, though, because they themselves are slaves. Some estimates have it that there were about 220 million Roman people in the Mediterranean. Imagine Europe, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Syria, Judea, Egypt, Tunisia. Think of this huge plot with a lake in the middle with 200 million people and 70 million of them are slaves. Others would hear Paul's self-description. They would think cleaning man, maid. There were images of hardship and bondage and low wages and public aversion. You know, there are people who won't even talk to the maid who cleans their hotel room or the janitor who cleans the toilet at Target. If you stumbled across them, you wouldn't even have a conversation with them. Paul 
identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And the key to understanding Paul's self-image is to remind ourselves not of his job simply as slave, but of his master's identity, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Paul would call himself a slave of God or a slave of Jesus denotes at least two things. Number one, Paul desires to live a life of subservience and subjection to the word of God and to the will of God. Number two, it indicates a certain relationship of devotion in which Paul is employed by God. And guess what? Because he's employed by God, he's taken care of by God. He's completely at God's disposal. There's an interesting paradox in using the word slave as Christian. Christians are slaves by choice. We are love slaves. The Bible says that when a slave would become a follower of Jesus, where they would become born again, Paul would later describe them as God's free man. He would say, are you free? Now you're Jesus' slave. Are you a slave? Guess what? Now you're God's freed man. Paul was the slave of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And by the way, there was a group of slaves in Rome and they called themselves the slaves of the emperor. Their job was to just simply submit and do whatever the emperor wanted. Paul is the slave of the master of the universe. Paul has been freed from sin and Satan. And so slavery to Christ means freedom from sin and from Satan. That's part of your identity as well. At the heart of his ministry is service, but also dignity. If we're to be productive for God, we have to begin to think of ourselves and self-identify as servants. If you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you are a secretary, if you are a bank president, if you are an actor, if you're a professional athlete, if you are an engineer, if you are a custodian, if you are a bus driver, you self-identify. A slave. Paul also considered himself called. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he'll, he'll write, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus, called. The grace, by the way, comes before the apostleship. Salvation before service. Before Jesus says, go, Jesus says, come to me. He says, come to me first and then go into the world second. Commitment to the truth comes before commitment to the task. And many well-meaning people have failed to see this. John Wesley, by the way, was on his way to the mission field before discovering that he himself was an unconverted man in need of a savior. Can you imagine being a pastor going to seminary? 
learning the original languages and you don't even have a right relationship with God yourself. How is such a thing possible? How is it possible to be raised in a Christian home? How is it possible to grow up in a Christian culture? How is it possible that your mother and your father could talk to you about Jesus so much and yet in the hardness of your heart, you still don't even have a right relationship with God? Paul identifies as an apostle. Here the word means one who is sent. One who is sent on a mission. The idea is a representative, an envoy, an ambassador. If Paul's character description is service, then his credential is called. And again, Paul isn't a self-appointed apostle. Paul is separated, set apart for the gospel. By the way, the word set apart or separated means set off or defined by clearly defined boundaries or set apart for a special service. Paul is keenly aware that he's set apart and that means all other pursuits in life were subordinate to this one pursuit. This sense of calling has to grip every preacher. Every teacher, every minister, every man, every woman. I believe that this is the sense that has to grip each and every heart. All Christians are set apart by God. That includes you. Even though you don't visit that subject, you might not think of yourself as separated and called. In this sense, it means holy. It doesn't mean that you have some sort of supernatural ability to be better than anyone else. It means that you're set apart for a divine purpose, a specific function. I've used the illustration in the past. I have a, I have a, a pot that I use exclusively for brewing my tea. When one of my daughter-in-laws took it out of the cupboard and put mashed potatoes in it, I... I could feel myself coming undone. This pot isn't for mashed potatoes. This pot is for tea. And only tea. It means that you're set apart for the divine purposes of Jesus. The person who's called to the ministry will not be content to do anything else other than teach and preach Christ. And the preacher has to have an inescapable conviction that he is called or she is called and separated by God for this specific purpose. And when things got difficult, Paul would reflect on the fact that God called him to the ministry. It was that sense of calling and separation that kept him going through the most difficult of trials. And the difficult circumstances didn't come on him because he missed the mark or misunderstood God's calling, but rather because he was faithful in fulfilling the calling. And when things go wrong for you, you might be thinking, what have I done wrong? It could very well be that you've done that which is exactly right. Because you know him and because you love him and because you serve him at the core of Paul's identity, at the core of his being. He knew that this is what God was calling him to do. Is that what you know? Do you know at the core of your identity what you're doing? 
By the way, when you do, it's a comfort and it's a motivation. Do you know in your heart of hearts and your soul of souls that God has called you to be his friend, his constant companion, his mouthpiece, his messenger? You are the bearer of his love. And of his grace, you have been infected with the contagion of the Holy Spirit. Who reflects that love and that power. By the way, there are three keys to self-image. Servanthood, calling, and being set apart. If that characterizes your life, then guess what? You're starting To begin to understand what it means to know him and to love him. It is service, calling, being set apart. How would Paul answer that question? Who are you? He does in the opening line. I am Paul, a bondservant of Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Who are you? How would you answer that question? Someone's wife? Someone's husband? Someone's mother? Someone's employee? Someone's employer? The Lord is less interested in brilliance or charisma or genius than men and women who are faithful, whose lives are characterized by humility. And holiness and happiness. By the way, separation doesn't mean isolation. It includes the idea of insulation. The Christian needs to be insulated against the disastrous and weakening effects of evil and sin. When I was a kid growing up, I learned why there is a delicate covering on the outside of copper wire. I was warned, don't put your hand in that plug. But I have to find out for myself. I have no idea about electricity. And I touch that exposed wire. There's a reason why copper wire is insulated. And there's a reason why... Christians are to be insulated against the disastrous and weakening effects of evil and sin because it separates us in our motives and our ideals in our purposes. You see, there's a reason why there is this constant invitation to turn away from the things that are wicked and weird. And then Paul talks about his prospects for preaching. Look in verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. If in the beginning we are exposed to Paul's view of his own identity, now we are exposed to his prospects for preaching. The gospel isn't some theological novelty. This isn't something that Paul made up. 
It isn't something that he gets together in order to trick people into following him or for the purpose of making a living. The gospel isn't something that he made up. And what does Paul offer as proof? It's contained in the Old Testament scriptures, which he promised, that is, God promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel isn't some novelty that was just made up recently in order for the curious or the self-conscious or the self-deluded to keep yourself happy. God spoke in times past about the reality of what it meant to be estranged from God and how sin and sickness had taken its toll and that we would need a redeemer. So not only was the gospel prophesied in the Old Testament, then it was personified in Jesus. That's what he's saying. Ask a conservative. Was Jesus human or divine? He might say divine. Napoleon said, I know men and Jesus was no man. As a liberal, he might say Jesus was a good man, possibly even the best man, but he was a man. But both answers are right and both answers are wrong. The right answer is Jesus is both. He is God and man. And by the way, note carefully in verses three and four that Jesus is human and divine. Jesus Christ is spoken of as The son of man and the son of God. In verse 3, it stresses his humanity. The Greek expression here is ex spermatos. It means from the very seed of David. If we were to put it into modern parlance, Jesus is a direct descendant of Of King David, there is a sense in which he carries David's DNA. Verse four equally declares or stresses his divinity. The resurrection, by the way, didn't make Jesus the son of God. Jesus was the son of God before time began. Jesus is eternally God. The resurrection only revealed what was already true about Jesus. That he was God. The story is told of a Monsieur Le Pew who complained to Talleyrand about a new religion that he was desperate to start on his own. He wanted to create his own religion like L. Ron Hubbard. And people just weren't catching on. And he was complaining and he asked for Talleyrand's advice. And he said, to ensure success of your new religion, Monsieur Le Pew, all you need to do is have yourself crucified, rise from the dead on the third day and people will catch on. The resurrection declared that Jesus was the son of God. And Paul wanted the Romans to know the gospel of God in verse one, according to the ancient Jewish scriptures, was to preach Jesus as the divine human resurrected savior. And so in verse five, we are given just a hint at Paul's persuasion concerning his commission. It says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. In verse 5, he tells us of his own calling or commission by Jesus. 
By the way, when a person becomes an officer or a military member, he or she is given a commission or rank by the governing authority. I've told you that one of the great privileges of my life was when my son graduated from officer candidate school and I got to pin those little butter bars on his shoulders. My son became an officer because he went through a regimen of training. Jesus has made Paul an officer in Christ's army, but Paul didn't graduate from a military academy. Paul didn't fight in a battle in order to gain his credentials. Jesus ordained him. Jesus ordained Paul. Note what it says. Based on his brilliance, based on his academic career, based on the fact that he was able to practice law in a Jewish court and a Roman court and a Gentile court. No, Paul is ordained by grace. And by the way, Paul uses the word grace in the grandest, widest possible fashion. Here, grace means Salvation and wisdom and illumination and the power to serve. Grace was used by the ancient Greeks to describe favor, sweetness by a superior person to an inferior person. Then it came to mean favor or goodwill. Finally, it came to mean undeserved favor. The word charis appears one hundred and sixty times in the New Testament. It's a subject that Paul will never get tired of, and he's going to talk about it over and over and over again. So guess what's going to happen in our study in the book of Romans? We're going to talk about grace over and over And over again, the New Testament writers use the word to describe again the unearned or unmerited favor of God that he lavishes on ill-deserving sinners, the pardon of their offenses, and then bids them accept eternal salvation through Jesus the Lord. And so when Paul says, we have received grace, he means God's wonderful favor. Demonstrated in salvation. In 1 Timothy chapter 15 it says. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. And then he says. However for this reason I obtained mercy. That in me first Jesus might show all long suffering. As a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Paul says. Grace. Changed my life. There's a reason why Pastor Chuck calls this book the gospel according to grace. And then Paul's purposes. Look what it says in verses six and seven. After Paul has spoken of his commission, he talks about their calling. They are called saints among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome. This is interesting because it doesn't say to all who are in the church at Rome. He says to all who are in Rome. Beloved of God. Called 
The word to be isn't in the original language. It says saints. Hagio. Paul reminds the Romans that they're called of Jesus. Paul doesn't begin with an appeal to their love for God. Paul begins with an appeal of God's love for them. That's good theology, by the way. And that's good preaching. That's what every preacher should do. You don't begin with an invitation to ask people to describe their love for God. You begin with an invitation to express God's love for others. Beloved of God, that means well-loved. By the way, the word saints appears some 200 times in the New Testament, never in reference to the New Orleans team, sadly. About 60 of those times, it's used as a substantive. It's rendered saints. He calls us holy ones. Isn't that interesting? Does holy mean perfect, sanctified, glorified? You know, there's an element of that meaning in the word. Does it mean set apart? Yes. It describes both people and things, again, that are set apart for God. And since those things that are dedicated to God must be pure, the idea is that it carries with it a sense of purity without spot or stain. We are to become holy, set apart, more and more like the God we serve. And so God is calling from this world, from this culture, from this country set of people just like you exactly like you called set apart with a message these called ones are called saints by the way the catholic church uses this as a technical term of someone officially canonized by the church paul uses this term in a broad general sense To describe all believers who have placed their confidence in Jesus. It hasn't caught on in our culture and society. I'm thinking about testing it out. From now on, call me Saint Gino. See, you're laughing at how ridiculous it sounds. You go, ha, 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 ha. Wait, oh. The Bible says that The saint isn't a special class of people in the church. It's a description of everyone who's called out of the world and into the body of Christ. It has as its ultimate meaning you. You are set apart for God. You are sanctified. You are set apart for service for God. There's a Chinese proverb that says, If there is righteousness in the heart, there will be beauty in the character. And if there's beauty in the character, there will be harmony in the home. And if there's harmony in the home, there'll be order in the nation. And if there's order in the nation, there'll be peace in the world. Don't underestimate the power of God to change your heart. And by changing your heart, changing your home. And by changing your home, changing 
your community and by changing your community, changing the world. And this is just the first seven verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we know that the Bible has been given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are open to instruction for reproof. Lord, we pray that we would be open to have our sins recognized and identified and for correction. Lord, we pray that we will allow this book to correct our thinking, but most importantly, Lord, to correct our living. And so, Father, we look forward to an amazing time in your word. Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that as they continue their journey of love, as they continue their journey of faith, Lord, as we continue to begin to understand what all of these things mean, of what it means to have a right standing with you, rightness in the eyes of God, that, Lord, we would once again and continue forever to turn to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.